Father, we ask that as we open up your word that you would open up our hearts and our minds and make us attentive to your voice. We pray, O oh God, that by your Holy Spirit that even as we open your word that you would do what Jesus did for those disciples on the road to Emmaus, open our eyes and our minds so that we could see all of the ways in which your word has pointed to your son Jesus. We pray, God, that you would do that by the power of your Holy Spirit among us as we gather around your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. So we began a series a couple weeks ago entitled, What is the Bible? And so I wanted to begin uh, our sermon today by discussing two different stories that are given to us in the Bible. And both stories... Uh, involve people who are caught in the act of violating one of the Ten Commandments. And both stories involve these people who were violating the Ten Commandments coming underneath the threat of death by stoning. But these stories have two very, very different outcomes. And uh, the first story is found in John chapter 8. Many of you know this one. There's a woman who is caught in the very act of adultery, uh, she's cheating on her husband. She's taken before Jesus, and you, we imagine her being thrown on the ground before him uh, by these religious leaders who, I don't know how, but they caught her in the act. Don't know how that went down, but they found her, they drug her, threw her in front of Jesus, and they said, Jesus, in the law of Moses, it's commanded that this woman should be stoned, but what do you say? And the text says that quizzically Jesus bent down and he started to, to draw in the dust. We don't know what he wrote. Was he doodling? Was he writing the name of each one of the, her accusers along with their catalog of secret sins? Uh, we don't know, but we know that as he wrote in the dust, one by one, the accusers walked away. And then Jesus looked up at the woman and she, he said, woman, where are your accusers? And she said, there are none. And then Jesus responded like this. She, he said, then neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. And I read that story and it's just so beautiful and it's compelling. And then I contrast it with another story in Numbers chapter 15. And this is one of the most disturbing and disconcerting stories I read in the Bible. There's a guy who's out and he's gathering sticks on the Sabbath, which was a violation of the Ten Commandments. And we don't know why he was gathering sticks on the Sabbath. Maybe he was cold, he needed more firewood. Uh, maybe he had a hole in his roof, he needed to repair it. Uh, maybe he was just the rebellious type and the very fact that he wasn't supposed to gather sticks on the Sabbath, he went out and gathered sticks on the Sabbath. But we don't know. He went out and gathered sticks on the Sabbath. He was caught and then he was drugged in and he was uh, put into custody until it could be determined what should be done with the Sabbath breaker. And they inquire of the Lord, and the Lord says, according to Moses, that he must be stoned. And so the story ends like this. And so the assembly took him outside the camp, and they stoned him to death as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, these two stories stand in tension with one another, don't they? And it creates this tension and it raises a question and it's a familiar question if you read through the Bible. And we think, what is this vision that we have of God in Jesus 
in, in this vision that we have in Moses, and how can they be so different? And does Jesus and the vision that he gives us, is it in contradiction to uh, the stories that we find about God uh, coming in judgment and vengeance in the Old Testament? How do we relate Jesus to Moses? How does the New Testament relate to the Old Testament? You know, how should we understand Jesus and the Bible that he held in his, well, he didn't hold the Bible in his hands, but the Bible that, that Jesus had was our Old Testament, you know, I was talking to my brother uh, yesterday and he said that his four small sons had been reading through the book of Joshua and they came up to him yesterday and they said, Daddy, we've been reading through Joshua and God seems so mean and evil because he commands people to kill other people. What do I do with that, Daddy? And if you have read through the Old Testament, you can find yourself asking those questions. Now, of course, there's tensions in the Old Testament itself. Uh, there's not some monolithic vision of God in the Old Testament. There's pictures of God being full of compassion and mercy and forgiveness. And those stand in tension with these other, you know, kind of troubling and disconcerting images of God. And of course, in the New Testament, there's some tensions as well between the vision we have of Jesus on the one hand uh, in compassion and love, but also threats of judgment. But there is this, this tension, this, this very strong tension, a dissonance that we can feel between Jesus and the Old Testament. And of course, we are not the first people in the history of the church that has felt that tension. Back in the early centuries of the church, they, they were constantly wrestling with this issue. How does Jesus and the vision that we have of God that he gives us, how does that relate to the God we meet in the Old Testament? Is this the same God? And how are we to understand that? And there was even a heretical group in the first couple centuries of the church called the Marcionites that decided they would cut out the entire Old Testament, just throw it out. And, and actually, they cut out much of the New Testament as well. And maybe this is a question you have asked and it's interesting because this was a question that Jesus' contemporaries asked him. They want to know, Jesus, how do you relate to what's gone before us? And there was stuff that Jesus did that raised questions for them. There were moments in Jesus' life where it looked like, you know, he wasn't out gathering sticks on the Sabbath, but he was plucking grains on the Sabbath and rubbing them in his hands and eating and feeding his disciples. And here they were in this punctilious observance of Sabbath, and they're like, why? How can you read this Old Testament and just go out and break Sabbath like that? And of course, many of the religious people in Jesus' day were very strict in who they would hang out with, in line with how they read a book like the book of Ezra, which seemed to uh, call God's people to remain separate and distinct from all of the surrounding peoples. And yet here was Jesus eating meals with the most sinful and heinous people of his day. And they're like, what gives? And then, of course, the Old Testament has, has no end of, of commands about the kind of diet we should eat and the ceremonies we should observe. But here's Jesus, and he's saying things like this. He's saying, look, it's not what goes in the mouth that defiles a person. It's what comes out of the mouth that defiles you. And so Jesus' contemporaries saw him, and they heard him, and they're like, Jesus, what gives? Jesus, how do you connect with this body of sacred writings that we hold dear? Jesus, what is your relationship to the Old Testament? And this question Jesus addresses head on in Matthew chapter five. 
And I want you to see what Jesus says and how Jesus addresses this question. Guys, this is an incredibly important question for us to wrestle with. How does Jesus relate to the Old Testament? You know, if you are going to follow Jesus faithfully and well, if you're going to read through the Bible and not ignore large swaths of it and pretend like it's not there, if you're going to be honest, kind of in your read, you've got to wrestle with this question. How does Jesus relate to the Old Testament? And so we want to see how Jesus says that he relates to the Old Testament. And he tells us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, all these people were asking this question, Jesus, how do you relate to this? Like, what do, how do you understand the Old Testament? Here's what Jesus says, verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus said, let's get one thing straight. I have not come to set myself against the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish the Old Testament. That word abolish in Greek is the same word Jesus will later use to describe what the Romans will do to the city of Jerusalem. They will destroy it and they will pull it apart brick by brick. And Jesus says, don't think that I have come to destroy or deconstruct or pull apart or pick away the Old Testament. Jesus says, that is not what I am about. Of course, sometimes that is what many people who grew up in the church are tempted to do is to deconstruct and to pull apart the Old Testament. Many of our journey of faith, uh, we can relate kind of to this little, di you might not be able to relate to this diagram in your journey of faith, but this is a diagram that's been, it's proved very helpful for me in understanding kind of the journey of faith. And the journey of faith oft often involving three movements. And in the first movement, uh, you're in a space of orientation where faith is new and you have a very naive faith and you just accept it all and believe it all and uh, it seems like we're going to be happy all the day. And you read the Bible with faith and trust and this is God's word, it came from God. And then you move into periods sometimes of disorientation and maybe you experienced suffering or you went through a divorce or there was some abusive uh, pastor or maybe you went to college and there was a very smart professor or you just had a really intelligent friend that started asking questions to you about the Bible and about your faith that you had never asked. And all of a sudden you fall into the state of disorientation. And often in this state of disorientation, uh, the temptation is to start to deconstruct what you have been given, to start pulling it apart and say, what do you, how can this be God's word? It looks so human and it's, it's got all this awful stuff in it. You start pulling it apart and we can start to deconstruct the Bible. And this is very, very common. And it's very understandable. And quite frankly, sometimes some of the traditional ways you have been given to interpret the Bible do need to be pulled apart because they're not faithful to the Bible. There's something to that. And yet the problem with deconstruction is that deconstruction doesn't take you anywhere. You know, for example, if you've got some uh, problems with the engine in your car and you pull the thing on the side of the road and you take a hammer out or something, or you start a jackhammer, something, I don't, not a hammer, I don't know. You start, but you just start pulling the whole thing apart because there was some noise that you didn't like or there was some problem with it. Like, you may go after that noise accurate or appropriately, but you're not going to have anything to drive. 
You actually need to start tinkering with the engine and to get to a place that's more constructive. And this is what we need to do with oftentimes our faith and with the scriptures is we have a very naive view and then we get disoriented because we start reading about all this stuff and hearing about this and we're like, what does that mean? And how do I take this? And what do I do with this? And, and, you just get, and, and, and what we need to do is move out of that into a new place of faith where we look at the realities hard in the face we deal with some of the deepest challenges and some of them are left unresolved. I don't have everything resolved in my faith, do you? And yet I hold on. You move to a new place of faith and trust and hope. And it's interesting because when you look at Jesus, Jesus doesn't deconstruct the Bible. He doesn't pull it apart. He says, I didn't come to, to, to burn the whole thing down. You know, and it's interesting because Jesus was truly a revolutionary. I mean, Jesus is arguably the most revolutionary, transformative leader to ever walk the face of the planet. I mean, if in 2,000 years from now, you have 2 billion people following you and proclaiming that you are Lord and God and worshiping you, you've, you've started a movement, right? And this is Jesus. And so he was transformative. He... He, he, he bucked against the, the status quo. He challenged the religious authorities. He, he was not content with tradition. And yet he didn't deconstruct the faith. He didn't deconstruct the Bible. He, he held on to a very high view of Scripture. Scripture was so influential and so formative to Jesus, who he was, and his own understanding and his own mission. You know, Jesus, for his job, taught the Bible. That was one of his core jobs that he did. He would go into synagogues and preach and teach the scriptures. And of course, this wasn't something Jesus just taught. It was something Jesus lived when he was confronted by the devil in the desert. How did he fight the devil? It was by drawing upon the deep well of resources in the scriptures. And when Jesus was on the cross and he was crying out in God forsakenness, he leaned upon the, those deep cries of pain and God forsakenness in the Psalms. Jesus leaned into the scriptures. He drew his life on the scriptures. It was what gave him, him his vision and his direction. It was how he defined his identity was through this book. And you know, it's true, so many of the revolutionaries and the transforming leaders and agents in our own history have drawn their inspiration and have been those who have driven, who, who drilled down deep into the scriptures and it's been a part of their life and it's what's, it's what, it's, it's what's driven them on. You think about uh, leaders like Frederick Douglass or William Lloyd Garrison and the abolitionist movement. It was shot through with biblical story and image and metaphor and teaching and vision. And of course, it's there in the civil rights movement. Uh, Rosa Parks was a deep believer in the scriptures. And Martin Luther King Jr., his own imagination was shaped by the scriptures. And it wasn't that these people had to move away from or deconstruct the Bible in order to uh, be these strong revolutionary movement leaders. Rather, they, they drilled down deeper into the Bible. And this is what Jesus did. Jesus said, I didn't come to deconstruct and take apart the Bible. But on the other hand, 
Jesus didn't come to simply double down on everything that had already been said about God and revealed about God in the previous portion of these Old Testament texts. Look at what he says. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That word fulfill can be complete. I have come to bring uh, the, the vision, the teaching, the, the understanding of God that began in the sacred collection of writings gathered over a thousand years. I have come to bring them to their completion and their fulfillment. So I was reading this uh, passage. I was thinking about the trips we uh, take twice a year as a church down to Mexico to build a house for uh, a family in, in deep need. And the beauty of that trip is that a house gets built in two days. And so it goes kind of like this. On day one, uh, you work on the structure. You kind of get the thing, you know, the rudimentary parts of it up and running. And then on day two, you come back and you bring it to completion. And you take the, the initial structure and you actually create a house. On day two, you don't come back and look at the work and go, wow, what a shoddy bunch of workers that worked on this the day before. Let's tear this thing down because it's not what we want it to be. No, you come to it and you say, no, let's bring it to completion. And Jesus says, I have not come to tear down what's gone before me. I have come to complete it, to build on it, to bring it to fulfillment. But what does that mean, right? What does that mean? What does it mean for Jesus to bring this Old Testament picture with all of its tensions, with, with its dialectic, you know, kind of like tensions throughout? What does it mean for Jesus to bring it to completion? Well, number one, it means that Jesus came to advance the conversation. Have you ever been in a conversation where it just seems like there's an ongoing loop? Maybe uh, with a, a, a sibling or a boyfriend, girlfriend, or uh, husband, wife, you get in an argument and it just seems like you just keep repeating the same stuff going back and forth and back and forth and you're just on this loop, right? And you're like, the conversation is not going anywhere. Listen, Jesus came to advance the conversation, to take it to a new level. Let me put it like this. Jesus came not to simply repeat what had already been said about God, who he was and what it looked like to follow him in this world. Jesus came to say what had not yet been said. Look at what it says back in the text. Notice uh, how, how Jesus explains this. As he gets into kind of the body of the Sermon on the Mount, he says this in verse 21. He said, you have heard it said, and then he quotes some bit of the Old Testament. And then he says it again, you have heard it said, and he quotes a bit of Moses. And then he says it again, you have heard it said, and he quotes, he goes back to these Old Testament scriptures, but then he says, but I say to you. And what is Jesus doing here? Jesus is advancing the conversation. He is saying something new. He's bringing fresh and new and, and, and a greater revelation than what had gone before. Jesus is advancing the conversation. Now, in doing this, Jesus is not discounting what had been said before. Throughout the Old Testament, through this period of a thousand years, uh, there had been people that had had encounters and experiences with God that they bore witness to. 
Some who experienced a great burden, a word from God that they came and delivered to God's people. Some that experienced God guiding along their intellect as they wrote their histories and chronicles, or maybe a some as they pondered about the way the world works, like uh, in the book of Proverbs or Ecclesiastes. They brought to us revelation from God, but Jesus comes to bring us a fuller and a better and a truer revelation from God. As uh, the author to the Hebrews put it, he put it like this. He says, God at various times and in various ways spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son who, listen to this, he says, who is who he appointed heir over all things and through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He says this a little bit later. He says, Jesus is greater than Moses, even as the builder of the house is greater than the house itself. Jesus is greater than Moses, even as a son is greater than the servant who is in the house. He says Jesus and the revelation he brings is greater. In fact, John's gospel puts it like this. It says, no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who is at the right hand of the Father, he has explained him. He has uh, exegeted him. He has brought out and disclosed to us. In other words, Jesus is the fullest disclosure of God we will ever hope to get. Jesus is the best. Jesus is the clearest. Jesus is the most lucid revelation of God that we ever hope to get. Or we could put it like this. Uh, the, the, the Old Testament or uh, biblical theologians talk about how the Bible comes to us as progressive revelation. Now, when you hear that word progressive, take it out of 21st century American political terms. We're not talking about conservatives and progressives. That's not at all the language we're talking about here. What they mean simply is that there is a progression of revelation that God gives to us about himself, and it builds over time. I mean, you think about a child. A child doesn't come out of the womb, you know, speaking in Shakespearean uh, poetry, right? I mean, mine did. But most children don't who are not nearly as advanced, as intelligent as my children. No, a child first needs to learn how to enunciate letters, and then they have to learn the alphabet, and they have to start using speech, and then they start putting together words, and then sentences, and then paragraphs, and then starting to organize those paragraphs, and thought patterns, and all of this. And there is a growth from the rudimentary to the more sophisticated and beautiful. And this is how theologians say God's revelation has come to us. It begins in a more rudimentary phase, and how else could it begin? You know, God encounters a people who are polytheists, who think that there's a God over every, you know, rock and uh, uh, the sea and the stars and all this stuff, and God starts to reveal himself, and it, the revelation grows and it builds out, and God's plan for his people grows and builds out, and it reaches this climax in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus came to advance the conversation, he came to say what had not been said. In fact, he'll say a little bit later in the Gospel of Matthew, he'll say to his disciples, many of the prophets of old 
long to hear what you hear. And they, they, they long to see what you see. In other words, Jesus is saying, I have come to speak something you have not yet heard about God. I have come to show you something, disclose something you had not yet seen about God. And what had they not yet seen? What had they not heard? Well, of course, it comes to its climax in the cross and resurrection of Jesus. They had no idea that this is where the story was going. They had no idea from all of the complexity and the diversity and the tension and the disjunctive nature of the Old Testament collection of writings and stories and the way they, and they get to this point and it's like, this is what God is like in Jesus. God discloses himself in Jesus. He advances the conversation. But he not only came to advance the conversation, Jesus came also to move the God's plan forward. Jesus came to move God's plan forward. When he says, I have not come to abolish or to deconstruct the law and the prophets, I have come to complete it or fulfill it. What he's talking about is not just what he would say or what we would see about God and the ways of being with God in Jesus. He is saying, I have come actually to carry the story that began in the Old Testament and in these writings. I have come to bring this story forward and to bring it to its completion. Or put it like this. You know, the Old Testament, this collection of writings over a thousand years, written by so many different authors and different writing styles and all this different stuff, it tells one coherent story. And the story is about God and it's about us, broken, fallen humanity. It is about God selecting out of the broken mass of humanity one man and one woman, Abraham and Sarah, through whom he is going to bring a family and through this, he's going to take this family, Israel, and he's going to load them down with his promises. He will say, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to make you great, and through you, I'm going to bring my blessing to all of the peoples of the earth. This world is fraught through with sin, and it's broken, and it's under curse, but my plan ultimately is to bring this world my blessing, and I will do it through this nation, Israel. And he tells Abraham, through you, through your descendants, through one of your descendants, I'm going to bring my blessing to all the peoples of the earth. And as the story of the Old Testament unfolds, this beautiful, this compelling plan of God starts to unfold in greater and greater ways. And you get to David, and God advances the plan a little bit further. And he, he promises David that he, he's not just promising to bring his blessing to all the peoples of the earth, but he is going to send one from the line of David who is going to be the king over every king. And this king is going to administer God's rule in God's world. And he's going to bring peace and justice. And creation is going to be flooded with the presence of God when this king comes. And as the Old Testament story continues and we have all these promises of blessing and kingdom and covenants and all of this stuff, the Old Testament really ends kind of as a, as a sad story because Israel ends in exile and then they finally come back from exile and, and they're just like, this doesn't look like God is fulfilling his promise. How is this whole thing gonna work out? How is and then the prophets come to Israel and say, no, God is gonna be faithful. He will bring a king from David's line. He will bring blessing from one child of Abraham. 
A son of Abraham will come. A son of David will come. And, and, and the Old Testament ends, and you go for 200 years after the close of the Old Testament canon, and, and Israel's waiting like, when, how, what, how is this all? And the very first verse of the New Testament opens like this. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. And the rest of the gospels go to incredible lengths to show how Jesus has come to bring all of the Old Testament hopes and dreams to their realization, to their completion in the strangest, the most unexpected way. And so Jesus came to carry the story forward. In fact, it's interesting, even in the Gospel of Matthew, which we're reading right now, Matthew uses this phrase, and this was to fulfill the words of, he uses that phrase 10 times. Matthew has over 60 direct quotations from the Old Testament to show that Jesus is the fulfillment. He is the son of David. He is the son of Abraham. And then um, he, 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 he has hundreds of allusions to the Old Testament to show that Jesus is the one whom all of these promises of God will become yes and amen right in the middle of human history. And so Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to deconstruct, to take them apart. I have come to fulfill them. I have come to bring this story to completion by advancing the conversation, our understanding, our consciousness of who God is and what he commands of us. And I have come to bring God's plan forward by bringing God's reconciliation and healing to all creation And so if all of this is true, I just want to say there's, there's, there's two kind of like, uh, two exhortations I have for you as it relates to reading the Bible. So number one, if this is true, if all of these Old Testament stories and, you know, stuff is, is always, it's kind of like it's leading up to Jesus and Jesus brings this story to completion, the number one we need to learn how to read forwards. And what I mean by that is we need to learn how to come to a deeper understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do by having our minds and our hearts and our imagination shaped by this Old Testament narrative. You know, oftentimes our Jesus is too small because we don't see the story that Jesus has come out of, that he has come to bring to its completion. Oftentimes we think about, you know, we have our own personal Jesus, you know, back in the 80s. Depeche Mode, they sang, my, you know, your own personal Jesus, someone who will hear your prayer, someone who cares. And then Johnny Cash made a cover up, which was even better. He said, my own personal Jesus. Come on, everyone. <laughs> someone who hear my prayers, someone who cares, you know. But we have our own, per but Jesus is more than a personal Jesus. He is King Jesus. He is the cosmic Lord of all reality, Jesus. He is the one who has come into the world as the son of Abraham to make God's blessings flow to every crevice of creation as far as the curse is found. There's a great little incident in C.S. Lewis's book, Prince Caspian, where Lucy is talking with the great, Lion Aslan, who's uh, kind of this allegorical picture of God. 
And she looks at him and she says, Aslan, you look so much bigger. And Aslan replies, this is because you're older, one, you're older, little one. And she said, not because you are? And he said, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. You know, every year you grow in your depth of knowledge and understanding of God's promises and of his purposes in this strange, unfolding collection of writings of the Old Testament, your understanding of who Jesus is and what he has come to do gets bigger. So number one, we need to, to, we need to learn how to read forwards. But secondly, we have to learn how to read backwards. I remember back, I think it's in the late 90s, there was the movie Sixth Sense. Anybody here see the movie Sixth Sense? And uh, there is this beautiful plot twist at the end of the movie. And when you get to the end of the movie, and all of a sudden you see this plot twist, your mind just goes, no, that, no way. And all of a sudden you have to go back and rewatch the entire thing. And this is what we need to do with the Old Testament scriptures is we need to read backwards after the revelation of the great plot twist, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting our sins against us. That God was in Christ in this tremendous act of gracious and generous self-giving love, not coming into the world to stuff our sin in our face or to condemn us down to hell, to death. Jesus came into the world to rescue us from sin and death and darkness by his own gracious, generous, self-giving love. And it's when we allow this to be the primary picture that we have of God the fullest disclosure of God's true self. And then we read backwards into the Old Testament and we say, look, you know, I, I don't know, I don't know, quite frankly, how to read and understand a passage like Numbers 15. The stoning of this guy on the, you know, for breaking the Sabbath. But I know this, God's will for me as a human being in this world is not to walk around casting stones at people. God's will for me as defined through his revelation in Jesus Christ is to extend God's compassion and grace and mercy and love and to say, neither do I condemn you, but pull yourself out of that destructive way of living. Our, our life, our imagination must be shaped by Jesus. Now, I recognize that we haven't even begun to scratch the surface of all of the stuff we need to talk about as it relates to these issues. And so I would invite you, if you want to just, if you've got, but what about, and how about this one, and what do you think about this? We'll have a Q&A time in between this service and the next one. And so come back, we'll spend some time talking. And I don't have all of the answers, that's for sure. I've got a lot of questions. But I know this, Jesus valued and prized this collection of sacred writings. He treated them as that which God himself had revealed. They played this defining role in his own life and they need to play a defining role in my life and I need to see in these texts all the ways in which they point to Jesus. 
I want to close with this image. This is um, a famous piece of artwork by Matthias Grunewald. And uh, I love this picture because of the finger of John the Baptist. By the way, that figure right over there is John the Baptist. And I just want you to notice his elongated finger. And this gives us a vision. John was the last and the greatest of the Old Testament prophets because his role was to point us to Jesus. And ultimately, this is what all of the law and all of the prophets were ultimately always intended to do is to point us to Jesus. This whole story all along has been about Jesus. And we see that when we read backwards. When we read backwards in the words of Tim Keller, we see that Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden, his garden, a much tougher garden, and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who is called not simply to leave the comfortable and familiar and to go into the void not knowing whither he went. Jesus was called to leave the glory of heaven and to go into the void. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who was not just offered up on the mount but was truly sacrificed for us all. While God said to Abraham, now I know that you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son from me. Now we at the foot of the cross can say, now we know that you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from me. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of God's justice that we deserve so that we, like Jacob, can only receive the wounds of grace. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who is at the right hand of the king and who prays for those who betrayed him and sold him and uses his power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between his people and mediates the new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses who is struck with the rod of God's justice and now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job. He is the truly innocent sufferer who intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David whose victory becomes his people though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it for themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace but the ultimate heavenly one who didn't just risk his life but gave his life who didn't just say if I perish but said when I perish, I perish. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who is cast into the storm so that we can be brought in. He is the true and better Passover lamb, the true and better temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. The Bible is not about you. It's about Jesus, ultimately about Jesus. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have come after us and we pray that you would open up our eyes so that we could see all of the ways in which your word reveals to us new aspects of who you are and what you've come to do. And we pray, oh God, that you, we would also know your grace and your power once again in our lives as we come to the table and as we share together in these tangible elements that remind us of your broken body and your shed blood, which was given for us. And we ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.